Good morning. We want to welcome you guys as you guys are settling in and, and on this great day. We are excited to be able to be here this morning. We're be able to uh, celebrate communion, uh, to be able to gather together and, and, and just be able to worship God. We serve an amazing God, don't we? We do, absolutely. We have the privilege of being able to be in this place and, and to gather and we also want to keep in mind, um, in light of our privilege and the ability for us to gather, our brothers and sisters that are in Ukraine, and I'd like to open up our service and just praying for them if we could, and then we're going to hear from our uh, missionary that has come out and visits us at Holtz. Um, and also as a reminder, um, and we'll talk about announcements later, but just to put it on your radar, tomorrow night we're going to have a special prayer meeting um, here at 7 o'clock and interceding and praying for those in Ukraine. So, but let's pray this morning for our service and, and ask the Lord's time and, and blessing to be upon us. God, we thank you that we can, we can gather in this place at this time, that we gather in safety and we gather in the assurance of your presence that's here. And we know that uh, across the globe, there are churches that are in Ukraine that are gathering. I think of a, a church that I heard about that's going to be having a, a service today. And then from that service, they're going to try to dismiss their membership to head over to the west side to, for safety. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters. We ask, God, that you would provide protection and provision for them. That you would bring an end to this war. That, God, that you would superintend your perfect will over um, man's sinful behavior. And that you would bring, bring about peace. Lord, we know that that peace won't come until you come Lord Jesus. So, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We thank you for this time. Lead us, Holy Spirit, in our time. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise Jesus. We want to be able to enjoy our time. And I want to invite up Ed Holtz, who's here from Crew. Ed is, is one of our missionaries, um, and he's out in the Florida area. And he happens to be up here visiting family, so we get the privilege of his presence. Candace, I think, is doing Grandma's time, right? Yes. So, so we're gonna. He's gonna share with you. How many of you guys know what crew is? C R U. How many of you don't know what crew is? There you go. Okay. There you go. Well, uh, crew is. Um, it used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ. We haven't abandoned Christ in changing the name, but uh, campus and. Um, Crusades didn't really ring well in a lot of the different countries we're in. We happen to be the largest uh, independent mission organization in the world. We have uh, staff in 190 countries, and we have access to over 90% of the world's population. Uh, my wife and I have been on, I've been on staff with Crew for 48 years. Uh, my wife for 49. I married I married an older woman, but no wiser. Just just so you know. Um, and uh, we, uh, we spent uh, the first four years of our married life at USC, the University of Southern California. I had a Bible study when we were there with the football team, and they won the national championship twice. So it can't, it can't get any better than that. But we left there. I, I went to Dallas Seminary for a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies in 1979. And in 1981, my wife and I, with a, a two-year-old and an 11-month-old in diapers, moved to communist Poland. And we were there for seven years. And uh, we saw really a fruitful ministry. Mostly everybody in Poland is Catholic. And we actually had a, 
actually had a discipleship group uh, with one of our Polish staff uh, with a group of Catholic priests that had come to faith, and they had never heard the gospel before. So uh, we spent seven very fruitful years there, and then we moved to, to England, to London, England, and we spent 18 years in London. London is a very post-Christian culture. Uh, I would, I'd say it's even moved now to becoming what we would call pre-Christian. We had the opportunity to share the gospel with thousands of people while we lived there, uh, and it, it took people sometimes two to three years before they would come to faith. Uh, they were so far from the gospel, and I'd have to say that everybody we shared the gospel with in England in the 18 years we were there had never heard it before. And when you think of the spiritual heritage that that country had in the 1800s, to see where it had gotten, and, and the problem was the church just had abandoned the gospel. And um, so we moved back in 2006. It was the hardest thing that we've ever done. Um, meeting, uh, it was easier to go to Poland with a two-year-old and an 11-month-old in diapers than it was to come back here without any children. Because for me, it was like coming to a foreign country. We'd been gone for 25 years. The American culture had changed, and I had changed. And I didn't know what I was doing. I had to learn how to do ministry all over again here. We're running up. Our ministry in, in Poland covers the city. Campus Crusade does have primarily a campus ministry. But we are working in the city, and we're working. I have a staff team of about 15 people. Four of them are African Americans. And we're working in missional community all over the city. We work with uh, homeless people. One of my staff has a, her missional community is with homeless high school athletes. And uh, she's just reaching these kids with the gospel and giving them training in athletics and also mentoring them for school and all, all those kinds of things. And I have uh, uh, one other, one of my staff is, um, he is working, he comes from a horticultural background, and um, he is using vegetables that he grows. And we have these gardens down at our headquarters. And he's using vegetables as a way to meet his neighbors. He distributes the vegetables for free. He meets the neighbors, finds out where these people are at, just gets to know them, and then invites those that are interested into his home for a Bible study. And uh, one of the churches, one of the big churches in Orlando, has approached him and wanted to know if they could use his way of doing ministry like that for church planting, using the di distribution of vegetables to build relationships in the neighborhood. And they've seen a number of people come to faith. So it is really a, an exciting uh, ministry. Uh, it's been very varied. Just one brief thing. In England, it was very unusual for someone to meet someone that did what I did for a living. And so whenever I introduced myself, I would always ask, what do you do for a living? And they, they would tell me, and then they would ask me. And I would say, well, I'm a Christian missionary. And I, it got to a point where I said, listen, I can tell by the look on your face you're sorry that you asked. And then you'd get this nervous laughter. And then I said, there's another way to look at it. I get paid to be good, and you're good for nothing. And then you'd get more nervous laughter. And they really didn't know what to do with me. There was no place for them to put me in category-wise. So we really had a, we had a marvelous time in England. So multitudes of people come to faith, but it took a long, a long time uh, for them. They were so far from the gospel. So uh, we appreciate your prayers and support for what we're doing. We love uh, what God has called us to do, and we're thankful that you can be a part of it. And so we're still continuing to do those kinds of things in Orlando. 
Orlando is a very diverse and a very rapidly growing city. And there are people from all over the world that come to Orlando. Uh, it is the most often visited tourist site uh, for most people in Europe. They, people just come in the droves. So uh, we appreciate your continued prayer for what uh, God has called us to do there, and we're thankful that you can be a part of it. I don't Thank know you. if I went over or under. You are perfect. That's okay. Yeah. We're going to pray right now. We're going to have the ushers come forward for this morning's offering too. We're going to we're going to kind of double dip before the throne of God. We're going to pray for Ed and also pray for the offering. So let's do that. So God, we thank you for Ed and Candice and the ministry, for the years of ministry and faithfulness and perseverance in ministry. Whether it was overseas or, or in Orlando, and Lord, we know that you've called them for that amazing work, that you've equipped them for the work of ministry. We pray for their provision and for the power of the Holy Spirit and the divine appointments as Ed is the spearhead of the team that's down there. Lord, I pray that you give him uh, just new insights on how to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Whether it is uh, leading in devotions and, and Bible studies weekly or listening to um, how to coach them, Father, that they could glean as he raises up the next generation of leaders that will reach out to a mission field that is very vast and wide unto harvest. Lord, I pray that as the Lord of the harvest, you would send forth laborers uh, into Ed's ministry and into the ministries that we see with crew to be able to work within the cities. Lord, as people are, are not going into church buildings, we know that the church can exist within homes and within leaders. So may you raise up these leaders. Father, we thank you for your provision within this church. We thank you for the offering that we're about to receive. Lord, may these resources be uh, used for your kingdom's sake, whether it's here or out in the mission field, that, God, you would be glorified and honored. We thank you in all this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you give your tithes and offerings this morning, let's also lift our voices and worship to our God. Have you heard that has been conquered? Lord 
Jesus, the anchor of my soul. 
says there's so many reasons to love you and we see that at the tables in front of us this morning the true love of what Jesus did for us giving us his life giving us his body so that we could be set free from sin that we could have that bridge that was um, uh, built that was the, uh, to cover that distance between God and us so this morning, we invite you to the table to come and find a cup that has the bread in it, a cup that has the juice in it. Take it back to your seat and we'll all partake together. In just a few minutes, if you're joining us online, we invite you to get some elements there at home. We just want to remind you that this is for those of us that declare Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, now's the perfect time to do that. You can grab one of the ushers or someone next to you and they can lead you to the throne of grace so that you can partake with us this morning as we continue to worship through song. In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light till from heaven you came running 
just take a moment and in your heart and in your mind's eye, picture yourself before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're standing before the throne of grace and you're looking at, at God and with all boldness realizing that you are loved. Realizing that you are forgiven. That everything that you have ever done that was wrong has been wiped away. That you stand before a holy God, holy, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation, no fear, no anxiety, no worry. You stand before a holy God complete. That is your position now. That is where you stand now. Because of what Jesus has done. That is the grace gift that we have been given. But it didn't come free. Jesus had to pay that price. As a memorial and a symbol of our gratitude, there is one thing that he asked. That while we're still in this body and in this condition, that we would remember him. The bread that you have in the cup, if you would, take it out. This is the symbol, the reminder that Jesus designated for us to remember Him. The night before He died, He took the bread and gave it to His disciples and He broke it. And He said, as often as you eat this bread, remember me. This bread represents my body. My body that is given for you. So that you could have life. Jesus is the bread of life. Come down from heaven to give us life. And as often as we eat this bread, may we remember that we have life in him even now. God, we thank you for this bread. And all that it reminds us of. May we worship you and honor you in the taking of this bread corporately. We are one body fit together under the headship of you, Lord Jesus. We are one. We thank you for this bread. In Jesus' name. Let's all partake of the bread. You would take up the cup. We think about all our sins. Satan wants to remind you that you're a sinner. Satan wants to remind you of all those sins. But this cup reminds us that there is no more sin in our life. It's been forgiven. We've been washed. We've been made clean. The righteousness of Jesus has been put on our account. And we've been clothed in His righteousness. 
But that came at the cost of the sacrifice of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of sins. And it's the blood of the perfect man, Jesus Christ, that was shed on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this cup and all that it reminds us of. As we drink from this cup, we drink from this cup with great joy, knowing that our sins are forgiven. We look forward to that day when once again we'll be with you. And we'll raise a glass again. In that marriage supper of the Lamb, the reunion of the church the bride with the bridegroom, you, Lord Jesus. But till then, these reminders confirm in our heart that we are forgiven. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all drink from it. Thank you. In response is an act of worship. Whenever we do communion as a corporate body, we gather a special offering. It's a benevolent offering that is used to meet the needs of the people within our congregation and our community. It's our way of showing love to others. So I'm going to pray over that offering. The ushers will come. Give as the Lord puts on your heart. God, we thank you for this communion. We thank you that we can actively respond by giving towards others to help meet the needs of others. Lord, I think about how these needs are met. And even in the coming days... Some of these needs are going to be uh, met through this account to pay for travel expenses for those that are mourning, to, to, to be able to uh, just pay bills or, or, or pay medical bills for widows and, and, and those that are struggling. Lord, may you guide these resources to those needs. And I thank you for the gift and the giver as we are a conduit of grace. And may we continue to be that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lost are saved. Find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned. Feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Fatherless, find their strength. 
healed the dead are raised at the sound of your great name Jesus worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us Son of God and man you are high and lifted up and all the world Holy Spirit this morning in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. If you would open up your Bibles to Matthew 25. As we finish today the fourth part of the Olivet Discourse and Jesus answering some questions that the disciples had. You know as I got up this morning I looked into the mirror And I thought, who is that old man? (laughs) Y'all are laughing, but y'all did the same thing. In my mind's eye, I don't look like that. And then I look in the mirror and it's like, oh, what happened? You know, I would rather we just get rid of all mirrors, but can you imagine what this world would look like if we weren't able to look into a mirror? <laughs> that would be pretty scary. And I got, you know, you think about mirrors. Mirrors have been around a long, long time. They originally were polished metal. And so they would take metal and they would polish it to a, to a, to a real uh, sheen, whether it was copper or brass. And then about in the 1600s, they decided to make mirrors out of glass, and so they would take glass and then they would coat the back of them with, you know, some paint and, and, and some, some lacquer and such things. Mirrors don't create light. They're, they have a solid back, but what they do is they use light to reflect an image. And so whatever is there, as the light comes and hits that mirror and bounces, bounces around and it does all that stuff, and I don't want to get into all the things because I quite frankly, don't know. 
but the fact is, it creates a mirror reflection. In other words, what is in the mirror is what's really there within that, whether you like it or not. Now, as a kid, I remember going to carnivals and going to the fun house. And you go into those fun houses, and always kind of fun because you go through and, you know, they're all wavy and they got all that stuff and they're all distorted and all the weird things and you make all those funny faces. But you know in the fun house, those mirrors really aren't the clear reflection. They're a distorted view. And there's a lot of people that like to live in fun houses. They like to live in the distorted view. Why? Because they don't really want to see the, the mirror image of who they are or what they're really like. God has provided man a mirror that is much better than any mirror in your house. It's the Word of God. And as you look at the Word of God and as you study the Word of God, it provides a mirror reflection of who you are. But again, we don't always like that. In fact, many of us would rather not look into the mirror of the Word of God because we don't want to find out what we know to be true, and we are challenged by those things. And, and a mirror is only going to reflect the outside. A mirror can't look into the heart. But it's God's Word that really looks into the heart, that penetrates the inner man. And we need to be able to take a look at the inner man and see who we are and what we really are about. A mirror is a tool. That's all it is. It's just a tool. But it's a, it's a valuable tool. I'm glad you all looked in a mirror this morning. Because you're beautiful. You're looking good. But we're going to look into the mirror of God's Word this morning also. We're going to see some things. And this is a hard, hard passage. The Olivet Discourse is a really hard passage. Because it really challenges us. But today, as Jesus finishes this, it's an individual judgment that takes place. And again, like I said, we don't like what we see. You guys remember the account, the story, uh, children's story, Snow White? What did the, the, you know, the evil queen stepmother look in the mirror and she say what? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Now what was behind all that? What was, it was vanity. She wanted to be the most beautiful. And so, within that, she'd look at the mirror, and the mirror would say, yeah, you're great. No, there's now one more fairer than you. She was only looking at the external, and it was the vanity that was looking at the external. But you think about this Snow White. Why did the mirror say that Snow White was more fairer? Was it based on her beauty outwardly, or her inward beauty? More specifically, her compassion, her empathy, how she would show mercy. If you know the account, if you have kids or grandkids, you've read the account, she was loved by everybody, all the woodland creatures. The deer did not fear her. I'll leave it there. Even the, sweat, the seven dwarfs and grumpy and all of those. She would win over. Why? Because of her kindness and her empathy. Well, as we take a look at this passage, Jesus brings out the mirror of judgment. Both for a certain group, but I think also reflective in our hearts. Everyone, everyone 
Every person is going to be evaluated and judged. Every person. There is a judgment awaiting. And the judgment is genuine faith and eternal life. And the mirror of God's word reflects back to us, not the outward, but the inward. And will challenge us in our hypocrisy. We think we look good. But what happens when the mirror of God's word looks into our heart? And what does that bring out? It's up to us to be able to take a look at that and to judge that. And one of the things that we can look at and use as a mirror, beside God's word, is how you live, your behavior. Your behavior is a clear reflection of what you believe. And I'm not talking about your behavior here in church. I'm talking about your behavior everywhere, including your home. Now, you might be saying, Carrie, you're meddling. It's not me, it's God, because he wants to take a look at that behavior and our motivations that's there. And the descriptions. The question that we come to here, and to catch you all up in this Olivet Discourse, Jesus has come out of the temple area. This is his last week before the cross. And he's coming out of the temple area. He came through the east gate, down the Kidron Valley, up to the other side, to the Mount of Olives. He sat down. And he said, you see, all of that is going to be torn down. The disciples said, when? What are the signs of your coming? And how do we know it's close? And so we've been four weeks working through this Olivet Discourse, where he's explaining the signs of his coming, how we know it's close, and, and this area that's there. There are eight different judgments that um, are in future and also embedded in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is judging in the Olivet Discourse against Israel and their apostasy. He's also judging Israel and their hypocrisy. He's judging the religious system for their idolatry. He's judging the temple that is there. Yet there are future judgments that will take place. The future judgment of Satan and the demons. There is a future judgment within the tribulation and a future judgment of the wicked that is within this. This particular judgment that we're taking a look at in verses 31 and on in the rest of this Olivet Discourse is a judgment that takes place post-tribulation, pre-millennial. In other words, after the seven years, at the end of the seven years, after the battle of Armageddon, prior to Jesus establishing his physical kingdom on earth, when he comes, there is a specific judgment that takes place, and he describes it here. What is the judgment? The judgment is against the Gentiles and the nations of the people and how they treated the 144,000 Jews that were set apart during the tribulation to be the witnesses. It's very clear that Scripture teaches that no unbeliever enters into the millennial kingdom reign for that thousand years. So what does Jesus do? The question was, when you come, what's going to happen? And Jesus is basically saying, when I come for my physical kingdom on earth, I'm going to clean house. And there is going to be a separation. A separation of the sheep and the goats, as we'll take a look at this, this account within this. And the foundation of that separation, what is that separation? What is the criteria that he uses? He uses behavior as a, a, a 
barometer of faith. So we're going we're to take a look at that. And it's going to challenge you, for sure. These are some very, very difficult passages. There's a lot of people that have a lot of difference of opinions on these things. And, and that's okay. I just want to stick to the Scripture as much as we can within that. And so let's go ahead and let's stand and let's read through our passage as is our, our practice. Verses 31 to 46. And may the Holy Spirit be that teacher and, and the one that guides us. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of uh, these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in, naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care of you, take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So the question was, Jesus, when are you coming in your second advent? What are the signs of the coming? Leading into the question. So we know the context. The context was talking about Jesus' physical return in his second coming. Verse 31 tells us, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. So it tells us that that Jesus will be coming or returning to establish an earthly kingdom. uh, And we know that to be the the thousand-year reign. And the timeline is, again, post-tribulation, premillennial within that. This is not the white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation. Please do not confuse the two. As I said, there are a series of judgments that take place. Why is this not the white throne judgment? There's a number of different reasons that are there, but we also understand that Jesus is returning to earth. The throne is not in heaven. The the white throne judgment, the very last judgment, is a judgment against just the wicked. And heaven and earth has already passed away at the white throne judgment according to Revelation. 
So we know, based on a chronological timeline, it tells us that this judgment is there. We know that it is necessary, according to Jesus' own words, that no unsaved person enters into the millennial kingdom. According to Matthew 13.30, it says this, Although both grow together, and he's talking about the uh, parable of the wheat and the tares, and also the dragnet, in these two parables, Jesus teaches this principle. Matthew 13.30, And allow both to grow together into the harvest and the time of the harvest, and I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles, burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. What was that parable about? Well, the servant said, look, our enemy has come and he's sown weeds in with the wheat. And they look very similar. The tares look just like wheat. And, and Jesus said, according to the master, let them grow together until such a time that they will be separated. If you tear them out now, you're going to tear up the wheat. And then at the harvest time, then they'll be separated and then they'll, the, the tares will be burned. Another parable that he told right after that in 1347 is the parable of the dragnet. And, or, you know, in Pacific Northwest, we would call it the gillnet. Again, and the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet in the sea, gathering the fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. And so we'll be at the end, at the age, that the angels will come forth and take of the wicked, take out the wicked from among the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place, there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. So as Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom, those that are going to enter into that thousand year reign in his kingdom are all going to be saved. Not glorified, but saved. They're going to be part and parcel of, of the work that is being done during the tribulation period. It says that Jesus came in his glorious throne. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel prophesied of Jesus coming in this way. In Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14, it says this, I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man coming. And he came upon the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. Now, this is an earthly kingdom that all people, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So when Jesus returns and establishes first his millennial kingdom here, it is to be able to deal with mankind in the context of humanity. One of the big questions that has always been asked within the context of Scripture is this, does does God have the right to rule? It goes all the way back to the original sin where God was challenged by Satan and said, no, you really don't have the right to rule. And throughout the context from Genesis to Revelation, different methods of rulership has always been implemented, whether it was the priesthood or the kings or even Jesus himself or the prophets. All have been put into place and all been challenged by humanity. And the final authority would be Jesus himself would be in that position to, to reveal, yes, he does have the right to rule. In 32 to 33, it says, all nations will be gathered before them and they will separate them from the sheep and the goats. That word for nations there is ethnos. It's typically used for Gentiles. So whenever you see ethnos or nations used 
in the context of New Testament Scripture, it talks about the Gentiles or those that are the non, non-Jews within that. All the people that are out there that separate them from the Jewish nation themselves. All of them will be gathered in the world to stand before the king prior to entering into the millennial kingdom. Why? To determine if they have faith or not. Those that would come into the thousand-year reign, do you have faith? Will you be able to enter in? And the judgment of those is going to be a demonstration of faith that is given towards those that were the 144,000 Jews. If you're taking notes in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, we are told that there are 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of the nation of Israel will be set apart and they will be sealed during that tribulation period. Why? Because they will be the witness and the testimony of the power of God during that tribulation period. They will be set apart in a time when Satan is going to do everything he can to destroy everything that God loves. Is Satan doing that now? Yeah. Do you you realize that humanity is Satan's number one target? God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for you. Satan hates you because Jesus died for you. And so there's this... There's this battle for you in all of these things in this, in this time. And so in this time, there's going to be a separation when Jesus establishes kingdom between the sheep and the goats that are there. Now, in Near Eastern culture, the sheep and the goats, they would graze together. From a distance, they would look together. But it was always the shepherd's job to separate the sheep from the goats, to take them and to separate them. Why? Well, because goats tend to be a little bit milder, they're way more valuable than sheep. Their fur is much more valuable, and also goats, they could just be pretty hard-headed. Uh, sheep, you know, are dumb, but goats could be stubborn. And, you know, having been around them a bit, they, they like to butt against the, the grain and things. But when you take a look at biblically, sheep are always a type of God's people. We know this to be a fulfillment, the separation, based on Ezekiel. And Ezekiel 34, 17 to 19 says this, As for you, my flock, says the, thus says the Lord, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams, male goats. Is it too light a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture and that you would tread down with your feet the rest of the pastures? Or you should drink of the clear waters that you must uh, fold the rest with your feet. As for my flock, they must eat where you tread down and your feet... When they're full. Now we think about all of these sheep that are all put together, they're separated. One's to the right, one's to the left. Well, is the right hand just an arbitrary side? Or what does the right hand typically represent? It represents honor. It represents pleasure. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he was seated on where? The right hand. Right? So we see that place of honor. Whereas the goats are going to be cast out or left out on the left side. They'll be cast out in a way. Why? We're going to see, as Jesus explains, this is the separation that takes place, but then he's going to explain why. The judgment doesn't happen just because of it. he thinks it's a good idea. He does it because of, of defining um, differences. And the defining difference between a true believer and one who has been regenerated and a false believer 
the defining difference is going to be acts of mercy and acts of compassion. What you really believe is how you live. It's how you reveal yourself. And so Jesus will affirm and acknowledge the faith of these that, that will enter in based on how they responded. If you look at here in 34 to 40, he says this, and he'll put the sheep on the right, goats on the left, and the right separation. Then the king will say to the ones on the right hand, Come who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, there, you have to read this, and you have to read it critically. Notice what he says. Come that are blessed to the place that has been prepared for you from when? Before the foundation of the world. That tells us a number of different things. One, it is God's intention for you to be with him. And he has prepared a place for you before you ever existed. In God's foreknowledge, he knows that he wants to be with you. Man was created to be with God. And within this, he invites these sheep to enter into the kingdom blessing. Now, how God knows everything is beyond me, and, and I don't even need to try to figure it out. I can just say, yes, God. That's because he's God. He's got it all figured out. And, and yet there's some confusion in there. How do we get into that place, and how did they get into that place? We, we know that Jesus had prayed in his priestly prayer. In John 17, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also note, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundations of the world. Notice the connection. To those, he says, come with me to the place that has been prepared for you before the foundations of the world. In the priestly prayer, he says, this is the reason why. So that they will be with me and they will see my glory that was prepared, what? Or displayed before the foundations of the world. Before sin entered in. Before death entered in. It is God's intention in the Garden of Eden that we would be in fellowship with Him and see the glory of God unfiltered just to be able to do that. But death has come in and really messed us up, hasn't it? We don't see God clearly today because we, we are in these sinful bodies and one day we will be glorified with Him. But understand this, you have great value. That's why Jesus died on the cross to redeem you, to give you back that opportunity to be in relationship with him forever and those that are brought into fellowship with him will be in relation jesus didn't die on the cross for the angels and he didn't die on the cross for the animals and he didn't die on the cross for the rocks it was for mankind why because we were created in the image of god so that we would have fellowship with him the next time Satan tries to lie to you and tell you that you are worthless, tell him he's a liar and to pack sand. Because Jesus died for me. Great value. And you can understand that value when you, when you receive that gift of life through Jesus. When you confess that sin and say, God, I know my sin separates me from you. And the one thing that, that separates me, it needs to be removed. Jesus, I know you paid that price on the cross, but... I have to surrender my life 
my sin, and all of these things. Will you forgive me of my sin? Will you be my Lord? Will you be my Savior and change my heart? You pray that prayer in whatever context, wherever you're at. And you're given that new life. And you'll be able to enter into that blessing of the kingdom. We think about this, this from the foundations of the, the world, this, this kingdom. Enter into my kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is kingdom rule. God is on the throne and we are subjects to him. We are in that place. We are in relationship, but he's still on that throne. And when you enter into faith and, and that new relationship, Christ is on the throne in your heart. And within that relationship, and, and we can demonstrate that, that lordship by how we live. There are only two destinies for any human being. Eternal life or eternal damnation. Everyone will go one of two places. And there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those that are saved unto eternal life and those that are accursed unto eternal damnation. You are in one of two classes. Which class are you in? That's a question you have to ask yourself. Maybe this morning you have to ask that question to God. God, as you look at my life, what class am I in? Am I saved? Do I have eternal life? If I was to stand before you, would I be blessed and welcomed into your kingdom? Or do I stand at the threshold of being accursed and, and cast off? There is only one kingdom. You're either in it or you're not. And I hate to tell you, but you are not your own king. And you are not in charge of your own kingdom. That is a lie from Satan. So Jesus explains this aspect here in 35 to 39. Notice that the reward is based on genuine acts of mercy and compassion. You're welcomed in. You're blessed. Why? Because when I was sick, you came to care for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I did all of these things, or when you did all of these things, and mind you, he's watching when you did all of these things, you did it as unto me. The tribulation Gentiles, specifically in the context of this, will come to a place of salvation during the tribulation. In that tribulation period, when they come to faith, they're going to realize that the 144,000 are separated unto God. They are God's people. In that tribulation period... Satan is going to unleash his wrath upon anything that belongs to God, including these witnesses, and going to try to take them out. He won't achieve that, but it doesn't mean that these, these saints are not going to be persecuted. They will be. And how the believers respond to those that have witnessed and shared the gospel with them are going to show the acts of mercy because those witnesses are going to be thrown in prison. And it's going to be difficult. You think it's hard to be a Christian now. It is going to be horrible then. Horrible. And to be a Gentile, to stand up and say, I am standing with them, is going to put a target on your back. And it's going to be super difficult. It's going to be a decision that's going to be necessary to take place. 
Now, we've got to be very clear. These are not saved by works. We are saved by grace, not of works. But works demonstrate faith, as in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can, faith, can that faith save him? And, and it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Faith is always demonstrated in love and mercy and compassion. And you can check your life, and if you don't have those things, you better check your faith. Because it's not, it's not a real faith. And as a believer, you say, well, I, my sins were judged on the cross. Am I not, I, I'm not going to be judged. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul would say this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We need to check ourselves daily. Am I really living out my faith? Am I living out a faith that is based on mercy and forgiveness and compassion that Jesus has already shown towards me? Or am I living a merciless life? Because within that, Jesus explains the value of the mercy. He said, when you did all of this, you did it as unto me. As unto me. Do you realize when you show love, especially to believers, you are showing love to Jesus. Why? Because every single one of us that are believers are in the body of Christ. When you are saved, you are placed into the body of Christ. And so when you're showing love, you're actually showing love to Jesus because you're showing love to a part of the body. And they can't be separated. We can show compassion and mercy towards the lost, and we should, as testimony. But as we show mercy and love to other believers, we do that in, in order to be able to demonstrate our love for Christ. When you show love and mercy to another believer and compassion towards another believer, it's an act of worship. You're really responding to what Christ has done in your own life. And so the king in, in this account answers when they said, well, when did we see you? And he said, to the extent that you did it to the brothers of mine, even the least. What is the, even the least? Even the least would be the, the, the smallest one. The one that people would consider the least valuable, even the least of these, to be able to show that mercy to these brothers of mine. And Jesus is not talking about biological, he's talking about spiritual, because when he talks, he uses the word brothers or brethren, he's using it in the context of disciples. In Matthew 23, 8, he says this, But do not be called rabbi for one of your teachers, you are all my brothers. So we have that context. But when I look at this, what do you see? This is where detail is important. They were unaware of their ministry to Jesus. They were unaware of their worship to Jesus. When did we see you? 
They weren't doing it for accolades. They weren't doing it for attention. They weren't doing it to try to earn brownie points with Jesus. They were doing it as an outgrowth of faith. And that's huge. Because that tells us that the faith is genuine. The other thing that is interesting in here, that Jesus received that mercy and that compassion as a personal blessing. He was blessed by how one believer would treat another believer. He was blessed. And He rewards from that place of blessing. Jesus takes it personal when you treat His people poorly. How do I know that? All we have to do is take a look at the account of Paul in Acts. Chapter 9, verse 4. When Paul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Me. Who was Saul persecuting? The church. And Jesus took it personal. Understand this. When you are, are stumbling the little ones, when you are causing offense, especially to other believers, Jesus takes it personal. But when you are a blessing to other believers, Jesus is blessed. I was thinking about these Gentiles in the context of the Jews during this tribulation and expressing their faith through helping them. And I was reminded of the account of Corrie ten Boom. Do you all know who Corrie ten Boom is? Yes. So she was, and her family were part of the Dutch underground um, System that had developed in hiding Jews during the, the holo- time of the Holocaust. At great cost to themselves, they would bring in the Jews and they would hide them in their special place. They developed a special place where they could hide them and then, and then send them off. Do you know what her reward was and the family's reward? Was to be caught and put into prison camp. To be able to uh, do that. But it was out of that that abundance of mercy that she was showing mercy and the compassion. And so Jesus says, those that are showing compassion and mercy will receive what was prepared for them, which is what? Fellowship with God. Before the foundations of the world, that was always God's intent. And they're blessed within that because of how they lived out their faith. On the other hand, Jesus admonishes the merciless people. He, he will admonish them and cast them away. Notice what he says in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, note, accursed ones, where? Into the eternal fire, which was prepared for whom? The devil and the angels. Understand clearly, the eternal fire, hell damnation, was never prepared for mankind. Wasn't. It was prepared and established after Satan's fall with the demons. When they fell, God in his sovereign plan says, there will be a judgment and this is where you're going to go. The problem is, when man followed Satan's path and pattern in rebelling against God, man entered into that same judgment that that the devil and the angels were going to fall into. And the wages of sin is death. The wage of rebellion within this. It's it's an eternal punishment. 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 tells us, And the great dragon was thrown down, and the serpent of old is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. To be cast out from the presence of God is this eternal fire. When you think about what is the, the worst torment that you could ever have, can you imagine burning alive but never dying? When they... When you try to describe something that is indescribable, we use human terms, but we can't comprehend how it is. So we think about what is the worst thing that could ever happen within this. Revelation 19.20 says, This is the destination of all the lost. And the beast was seized with him, and the false prophet performed signs in his presence, which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. And those too were thrown alive into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.10 And the devil who deceived them was thrown down into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beasts and the false prophets are also, and they were tormented day and night forever. I think it's important for us to understand that this is not just a place, but it's a condition. We have no concept of how bad eternal punishment is. We have no construct, nothing to measure it by. In the same context, we have no concept of what eternal blessing would be. Because we don't understand it. But for the Christ follower, this is the most hell you'll ever see. But for the unregenerated, the cursed, this is the most heaven you'll ever see. Meditate on that. Jesus explains, as he did with the first group, why they're there. Because when I was sick and in prison, when all these things... You didn't show me mercy. You didn't show compassion. It showed your heart. You were unregenerated within this. You shut yourself off. And as John says in 1 John 3, 17, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And in a rhetorical question, how does the love of God abide in one that shuts off his ability to meet needs? The answer is what? It doesn't. It doesn't. And so with that, because we're all born into sin, and we're all born unregenerated, and we're all walking dead, every person that is ever born is already dead. And unless you're regenerated, unless God causes you to be born again by putting His Spirit in you, that is the eternal destiny for all mankind. And unless that trajectory is changed by the cross and by faith, that's where you'll end up. How do I know that I'm saved? Well, I've confessed Jesus as Lord. I believe in my heart. How do I know that I'm saved? How are you living? What does your behavior say? Because it's very clear that behavior is is a, a means by which Jesus judges. It reveals what's inside the heart. These were guilty of omission in showing lack of mercy. Think about in your life all those opportunities that God affords to you that you omit, that you don't do, for whatever reason. Maybe our prayer needs to be, God created me a new heart. Created me a clean heart. God, help me to see clearly who I am. Who I am in you and how I relate to the world. 
The conclusion in 46 says, These will go away into eternal punishment. But note, the righteous enter into eternal life. How were they righteous? Be very clear. You are not righteous by your deeds. Your righteousness is through Christ. But being in Christ, your righteousness is demonstrated through your deeds. So you cannot be righteous by the things that you do apart from Christ. You have to be in Christ. And so every day, you plug into the source and you say, Lord, what would you have me to do today? Notice how I prayed that. Lord, what would you have me do today? Why? Because you're already in the kingdom. You're in that place. Two kinds of people. Saved or damned. Two destinations. Eternal life or eternal punishment. Jesus was very clear in this last words of this discourse. You need to understand that there is judgment coming. So what should we do? We should live with mercy. Because mercy has been given to us. We should live with compassion. Because compassion has been shown to us. And we do so by faith. Not in our own construct, our own ability. There's a lot of people that I do not want to be merciful to. There's a lot of people that I don't want to be compassionate to. I want to say, you know what, you, you get what you get, don't throw a fit. I want to do that. But I need to pause and reflect and say, wait a minute. What has Jesus shown towards me that while I was yet a sinner... Jesus died for me. Change my heart. May that be our prayer. God, I thank you. That you're the God that changes hearts. You're the God that gives new life. God, you've called the church, your body, to demonstrate compassion and mercy to all, especially to the household of faith. Lord, these times are going to become more difficult. We know that. It is going to be harder and harder to be able to take a stand and and, and by showing mass, mercy and compassion, it's going to call on us to become a bigger target. But Lord, we know you got it. Open the eyes of our understanding, God. And may you continue to build in our life that righteousness that is demonstrated through mercy and compassion towards others. Until the day you call us to be home with you, or until you return, in either case, may everything we say and do make you smile. In Jesus' name. So I'll stand. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. There is no one like you, there is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder, show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me.
God, may we see people the way that you see them, through the eyes of compassion and mercy. But to be able to have those eyes, first we have to be connected with you. Lord, I pray for those that are here today. If they don't have that relationship with you, that they would seek that relationship out, that they would seek you out. And if they're having a hard time, may they find somebody that knows you, whether it's a person here, one of the leaders, the elders, God, we pray that they would come to a place of knowing you. Let me pray this out. God, I thank you that we can meet together, that you are doing a work, a good work in our hearts and in our church. Help us to be a light in our community and a light in this world. And may that light shine so that when they see our good works, they would bring glory to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.